I kind of announced to you that October seems to be a time of change and transitions, and I'm going to be making some changes today and in the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing in our regular format of services. And um, what we normally have been doing, obviously, has been going through First Peter verse by verse and covering those passages expositionally. And what I'm going to do for the next few weeks is I'm going to actually be covering a few topics expositionally, I pray, um, that are relevant to our theology here at Sovereign Grace and relevant to the time of year that we're celebrating here at Sovereign Grace. I, I happen to believe that this month contains one of the greatest holidays that Christians can celebrate. And I know that may sound strange because most of you only know of one holiday that's normally celebrated in October. But I have to say there was one that actually is much better that we can celebrate with joy and thanksgiving this month. And it's on the same day. It's October 31st that we celebrate Reformation Day. And so I'm going to attempt to try to cover a few of the reasons we're celebrating Reformation Day, the 31st of this month. And I hope in doing this, it will help you to understand more fully what we celebrate on that evening as we gather here as a church to fellowship and, and have fun together and rejoice in what God has given us. So be in prayer for me as I do this. Normally, what I'm going to cover in the next three weeks is what would normally take me five weeks. And it still may take me five weeks. But I'm going to attempt to do it in three weeks. And so please pray for me because I believe that these doctrines as derived from Scripture expositionally and historically in Orthodox Christianity, are important to us as a church. So, that being said, we are not going to be in Peter this morning. We are going to primarily be in Timothy, but not yet. So if you would, pray with me as we prepare to go into God's Word to be instructed once again. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the time to gather with Your children, with one another, and to fellowship together in grace and truth according to Your Word. God, the only reason we're here this morning is because you have illuminated our minds and our hearts to understand the relevance and the, the essential nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for that, we give you all thanks and praise. And all of the topics that we will talk about today and next week and the week after, Lord, I, I pray are, are certainly derived from your word and are effectual in our hearts as Christians. So God, I do pray that you would you would open our understanding this morning, thrill our hearts with your word, God. I pray that we would see your glory and your grace as we talk about the things that were recovered at the time of the Reformation. God, I pray that you would do a reforming in our own hearts and minds and theology this week and next week and the week to follow. We want to always be reforming according to your word, be transformed by the renewing of our mind through your word. That is our desire this time of the year as we come to your word and celebrate this great recovery of truth that was brought to us during the time of the Reformation. We ask you to open our understanding today as we read and hear from you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As I said, that we're going to celebrate a great fellowship time this, at the end of this month. It's a great time of the year to do it. I love October. October is really one of my favorite times of the year. In October, I feel... I feel invigorated. I feel excited about going outside again and enjoying what God has given us in nature. And you begin to feel those cool breezes every morning. And you can smell the fall in the air. You can smell the coolness coming. But what's even more important to me than that is you can hear something this time of the year if you listen closely. If you listen very closely, you can hear an echo of a hammer banging away 
from Germany. It's a hammer that's been banging away for 493 years this month. On October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther was the man banging that hammer on the castle door of the church there, nailing up reasons why the church of Rome needed to change. And one of the key reasons they needed to change was they had departed from the Scriptures. And he wanted them to be brought back. But you can hear that echo, but you can also hear another echo along with Luther. You can hear, if you listen closely in the distant past, a proclaiming of five foundational truths that never change no matter what season of the year it is for Christians. You can hear these five cries from the, of the Reformation if you listen closely. And some of you know what they are. I'm going to read them to you. I'm going to tell you what they are real quickly so you'll be familiar with the terminology. And the terminology is in Latin. That was the language of theology of the, of the day, of the academic world. And I'll give you the, the Latin phrase and the English phrase so you understand. We can, we can hear the Reformers cry five things this morning. Sola Scriptura. The Scripture alone is sufficient for us as Christians. And it's the sole authority in our life. And they would cry, Sola Gratia. Grace alone. By God's grace alone are we saved. And they would say, Sola Fide. And it's by faith alone we are saved. And then they would say, Sola Christus. Through Christ alone does the salvation come. And they would say, all this culminates in Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone is all praise and all honor. It's through the Scripture that we see that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, to God's glory alone. It is the work of God. That is what the Reformers uncovered when they found the Scriptures. Understand, the Reformation turned on the, the recovery of the original languages. Theologians who were not even able to have access at times to the Scriptures were finally coming to a point where they could study the original languages and be able to, to dig in and they begin to see truths that had been covered in darkness. And my attempt in the next few weeks is to try to preach through some of those truths to prepare us to stay away from the darkness and to walk in the light. So today I want to look at the, the basis of one of those foundational truths. And this may sound more like a lecture this morning, and that's okay because I want to lecture you to go to God's Word, to see truth, and to be brought to the light. But we're going to look at the basis of the foundational truth that really, I think, was key to the Protestant Reformation. And it should continue to be the key to your soul's Reformation. What we're going to look at this morning is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, the Scripture alone. Which Here's what this basically means. This phrase encapsulated the theology that they taught, a doctrine that they taught, was simply this. That Scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And what that basically means is this. The Bible alone is incapable of mistakes regarding God's revelation to man. And Scripture is the only inspired, infallible, divine revelation from God to man. So therefore, Scripture is to be our sole guide and our sole and final authority in all matters of faith and life. The Scripture, though, is interesting because Scripture says that it is a sole authority, but then the Scripture itself says it's going to delegate some authority. And this is where Rome actually took advantage of the Scriptures and then twisted them out of their context. And they became the only authority. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture does declare itself that we are to submit to other authorities. That's why we're to submit to government. That's why you're to submit to the church leaders. But you only do that in so much as they don't go beyond Scripture in governing you. Sola Scriptura doesn't teach, or doesn't deny, rather, 
the place of a subordinate authority, which is what I am. It doesn't deny that there are subordinate authorities or rules of faith, such as pastors and sermons and creeds and statements of faith and confessions of faith. It doesn't, it doesn't say that those things aren't important. It says that all those things are, are subordinate to the final and sole authority, which is the Word of God. So inasmuch as I am clearly expounding Scripture with Scripture, you are to listen to me and obey. Where I depart from Scripture, you are to reject what I say. You submit finally and foremostly to the Word of God. The Word of God is the voice you listen to as Christians. There's only one voice that has absolute authority for the Christian church, and that is the Vox Dei. Or the voice of God. Or we could say the verbum day, The word of God. The very words of God. God's word has to be the Christian's final authority on every matter. And it also means that the, the Bible itself is sufficient to instruct us in every way in our life. There are some ideas that the Bible is good for certain spiritual things today. But it can't handle certain psychological things or certain religious or even ethical things. We have to find other voices to listen to. That's not the case at all. We have to realize it's God speaking to his people and he's giving us all that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. And if we don't have the guide of the scriptures to guide us, you know where we end up? We end up in the dark ages. That's exactly what happened at the time of Luther. When when God's word is neglected, even in Luther's time and even today in our time, it's neglected differently today than it was in Luther's time. In Luther's time, it was neglected in the fact that the church of Rome had the only access to the Scriptures. They didn't give access to the people. And then they read the Scriptures to the people in a language they couldn't understand. And they would tell them what they wanted them to know. Well, today we have buildings full of people who have Bibles, but no one's using them to preach to the people the Word of God, the Vox Dei. And so the people are in the dark, just like the time of the Middle Ages. We are slowly progressing toward a darkness here in a place where there should be much light. During the Middle Ages, the the Roman Catholic religion basically kept the light of God's Word from His people, and it led them to great spiritual darkness that they're still not recovering from it to this day even. The Roman Catholic religion, here's what it it simply teaches, and it still teaches this today. The, The Roman Catholic religion teaches that Scripture must be interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church because they alone are the Spirit's infallible tool of interpretation because they're directed by the Pope, who they consider to be the head of the Roman religion, the Roman Church. And and the Roman Church, or the Roman Catholic system, does not hold to sola scriptura. They they hold to sola ecclesiasticus, ecclesiasticus, which means the Church alone is the rule and sure guide for faith and practice. And they they did that in such a way that they could hold the people under their sway and in their control. And that teaching actually led them the people away from the truth and into more darkness. But in God's amazing grace, He sent the Reformers. He raised up men. And when He raised up these men by His grace and in His timing, He raised them up to be the light to the world because they went back to the Scriptures and began to expound those words of God to the people in their common languages. Great Reformers like men like John Huss or Jan Huss, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they were instruments in God's hands. And these men, instead of being captured by traditions and the doctrines of demons by the Roman system, they were captured by the Word of God. When, when Calvin finally got a hold of the Bible and began to read it, he began to feel the chains break loose of Rome. 
When Luther read that man was justified by faith, sola, faith alone, he was set free. He said he felt like he had been set free from bondage. He realized that he was not bound by his own sin. God had sent a provision through Christ, and he was trusting in Jesus for his righteousness. And what the Reformers were seeing was truth that was in the Word of God that had been covered for years, for centuries. The Reformers saw what had been hidden in the dark. And when they saw it, they couldn't keep quiet about it any longer. They began to go out and speak the truth boldly to the common people, which got them in much trouble. It threatened their lives. Some some died because of that. Wycliffe and Tyndale, men who suffered for proclaiming truth in the common tongue. But they didn't stop them. And it shouldn't stop us today to keep preaching the truth of God's final authority being the Word of God. One of the great things that happened as a result of of what they did, there was such a darkness in the, in the world at that time that the, the Reformers lived in, when they began to stand up and say, thus says the Word of God, and begin to preach to the people in the common tongue and teach them about the grace of God that had been covered by the, the darkness in, in Rome, there was a new phrase, a new battle cry that came forth. And it was called post tenebris lux, out of darkness light. And out of the darkness came light. There was that much of a contrast from what the Reformers were preaching and what Rome was preaching, that it looked like night and day. And really today, folks, that's really what we should be doing. We should be still saying, out of darkness, light. When we proclaim a gospel of grace, sovereign grace, it should have that kind of effect on the world because I don't think that most of the world is actually proclaiming this truth. And so they should be moved by this. And that light of the truth come from the Bible, it comes from the Bible. The Reformers rediscovered what the Bible had said, and so they began to read it and preach it and print it and distribute it throughout the world so that all of those who had been in the darkness would see a great light and come out of the darkness and into the light of the gospel of grace. Sola Scriptura opened their eyes to see God's grace in the work of Jesus. That's what had been covered. The work of Jesus had been covered and replaced with the works of man. By doing good deeds, by following the church's rules, you could be possibly justified to a degree. But you never really know. And they had covered that truth up that you were justified by faith alone and Christ's work alone. That had been covered and now the the Sola Scriptura teaching had uncovered the truth that was there. And now they knew the gospel. This was a threat to Rome because they lost their sway over the people. That's why there was rebellions at times throughout Germany. Sola Scriptura is, a, is an essential doctrine we have to teach. It's a foundational truth. We have to proclaim it today. Because what we're proclaiming in Sola Scriptura is that there is one voice that matters. There is one voice that is clearly our rule and guide in life as a Christian. And it is the voice of God. There are many voices out there saying that God's voice isn't enough. And we need to be aware of that. Even in Christian circles. There are voices out there saying God's Word is not sufficient. When someone says, I believe in the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible is sufficient to change anything in their life, they don't believe in the Bible. You can say what you will. You can read a confession of faith, but unless you apply this practically in your life, you are denying it like an atheist. Some people will say the Bible is the Word of God, but it's not sufficient to handle man's psychological needs. That's a denial of Sola Scriptura. Some people say God's Word is good, but you need to experience God. Not just look at Him academically. There's whole books dedicated to that. 
But there's one book that's dedicated to the revelation of God, and that's the Scriptures. That's what I need to experience God. To know Him is to know His revelation as in Scripture brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And understand this, the very basis of our doctrine, of everything we do, is based on sola scriptura. The Scripture alone is our guide. The Bible itself, from first to last, declares that sola scriptura is essential. Look quickly at Deuteronomy 32 with me. Deuteronomy 32. The Bible here in, in Moses' song, at the end of Moses' song, is, is a declaration that these words from God is, what, is exactly what the people of God need to hear in order to have life, and to have life transformed. I think sometimes we think of the, the Word of God as, as an important part of the Christian life because it, it brought us salvation, and that's true. In that we know the Gospel. But it's not that the gospel is, is all alone. The gospel moves us into action. It changes our lives. It guides the way we think and the way we operate in the world so we bring God glory. And that's what he's saying here to the children of Israel through Moses. God had spoken to Moses in chapter 32. Moses had responded by singing this wonderful song inspired by God down to verse 45. And, and he speaks directly to God's people through Moses. And he says, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. These aren't idle words. Church, this is the word of the living God. The reformers understood that when they read Scripture, God spoke. Do you realize that today? When you open the Bible, you hear a living God. He's speaking to you. Listen, you don't need an audible voice. You have an inscripturated, authoritative voice. It never changes. Listen, some people hear voices a lot. Those voices change all the time. They can't be trusted. This written word can be trusted. It is not an idle word. It is your life. And by it, your days will be prolonged. The Bible is full of God's authority, full of God's sufficient ability to change us and to conform us. It takes care of our spiritual and our physical and our psychological needs. you realize the word psychology comes from the word psyche? And psyche or suke is the word for soul. It's the study of the soul. There is no better book. No better book to study the soul than the book that was written to the soul by God. We don't need Freud. We've got God. He created the soul. He knows how to minister to the soul of man. God commands His people to listen to His voice, obey His voice, revel in His voice, be changed by His voice. His voice is alive and illuminating and it's powerful. And it penetrates the soul. We see that all through the Bible, but in particularly this morning, we're going to see that, I think, in a small portion of Scripture from the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3.14. Actually, 3.1. Just go to 3.1. We're going to look at 14 through 17 briefly this morning as an exposition of those verses and a brief exposition of those verses at best, but we're going to look at those. But I want to read in a moment the, the context. But what, I want to give you a little bit of an outline. This will help you 
if you're taking notes, to write this down. Maybe it'll help you kind of go back and study this out. In, in 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, Paul tells us that God's Word alone is sufficient to, number one, give us spiritual stability. God's Word alone is sufficient to give us spiritual stability. And number two, God's Word alone is sufficient to change us practically. It gives us spiritual stability and it changes us practically. It gives us spiritual stability because it founds our faith on a solid rock. And because of that solid rock and that revelation of that rock, that we are now able to be stable and be practical in the way it changes our lives daily. Now, if you, if you see this, you, you understand, when I teach Scripture to you, even in a topical sermon, we cannot divorce this topic from the immediate context. If I did that, I would actually be breaking the commandment that God gives in this passage of Scripture down in verse 16. So I have to read to you the context. So today you're going to be inundated with Scripture, which is good because we're talking about Scripture alone, right? All right, 3-1. Now, I, and let me just give you a little preface. He's speaking to the church. Paul the Apostle is speaking to Timothy, who's pastoring a church in Ephesus, and he's speaking to Christians in the context of a church. Now, just imagine this as I read this. He's speaking to sovereign grace. But realize this, sovereign grace, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And understand, the last days began when Jesus ascended. Okay? So that's, that's been 2,000 years ago now. So we've got, we're, we're further in the last days than, than Timothy was here. Sovereign grace, number verse 2 says, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they're in the church. Look what's verse 5. That's what verse 5 says. They hold to a form of godliness. I mean, Paul's warning a pastor about this. He's not talking to, the, to Timothy about the world. He's talking about what's going on. These people hold to a form of godliness. This is the context here. How can you deal with such people? How do you deal with these kinds of people in the pews? Do I, do I try to intimidate them? Do I try to manipulate them? Do I try to maneuver them through social economical positioning in certain places, make them feel important, make them a Sunday school teacher, make them feel responsible, they'll own their, their, their place in the church? No. I confront this scripturally. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. They hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now he's getting to something objective here. They're denying truth. Verse 8, But just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. It's objective. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the doctrine, to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice and Jambres' folly was also. Now, he's going to address Timothy. Now, pastor, you followed my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all of those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, pastor, 
continue in the things you have learned. Don't continue in the programs. Don't continue in the psychological manipulation. Continue in doctrine. The things you've become convinced of, knowing. That's all speaking of knowledge and understanding. Objective truth. Knowing from whom you have learned them. Those are doctrines passed on from one man to another. That from childhood, and even from mothers to children here, that from childhood you have known gnosis, knowledge, thinking. You have known the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to give to you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired. Theonoustos. Breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, here's the purpose clause, that the man of God might be complete, mature, adequate, equipped for every good work. Verse 16 is the answer to those false teachers. The Scripture... The breathed out words of God are adequate to make you ready and equipped and to transform your life to deal with these false teachers. Now that's the context here. That wasn't my exposition, by the way. That was just the context. Paul says that God's word is sufficient to conquer these things. What you need to understand about Timothy is he was a timid man. These guys scared the socks off of him. I mean, they're coming into the church. They're older than him, most likely. They're taking charge of the people. They're sneaking into houses. They're discipling. They're doing more work than the pastor is. And he's intimidated. What do I do, Paul? Paul says, preach the word. Scripture is enough to deal with these men. You teach truth, and they're going to be exposed. The truth of God's word conquers fear. The truth of God's word conquers ignorance. And and understand that the the greatest problems that were going on in the church are still going on today in every church to some degree. We still have men that are lovers of self, etc. And and the answer to all of our problems, the answer to all these things, are going to the Scriptures to find correctives and to find hope for those who have been misled or deceived. And understand this, the most sufficient hope that we have in Scripture is that God has dealt with our greatest problem in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Teaching that, talking about that, will help keep us on the right track doctrinally. It will keep us away from legalism. It will keep us away from licentiousness if we talk about the problem of sin being dealt with once and for all in the person and work of Jesus. Teaching that from Scripture will bring people back to a solid foundation. And it will actually expose false teachers. Look down at verse 14. Here's how Paul exhorts Timothy in verses 14 and 15. He says, number one, God's Word is sufficient to guide us to spiritual stability. To guide us to spiritual stability, He has to lead us to a solid foundation. Now, that's exactly what God's Word does. That's what it says here. Verse 14, You, however, continue the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Again, that's the Old Testament. These Old Testament writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to the rescue. Salvation. Salvation through... Faith, belief, trust, which is in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures are going to give you the direction to take you to a solid foundation. And that solid foundation is is found by having faith in God's provision, which came through Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Old Testament to Timothy. God's Word guided Timothy to Jesus. That's how you become spiritually stable. All Scripture, we need to understand this as a church, 
All Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture points to salvation by faith and God's provision. In the Old Testament, they didn't see fully that it was going to be Jesus, but they saw that it would be the substitute. They saw that in the temple sacrifices. We see it now in Christ. It's always been that man is saved by faith. By faith, by grace through faith in God's provision. Not by works, not by law, not by legalism. It's always been that way. But it was revealed that way in the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches that salvation is by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Faith in God's provision. Isaiah, which we need to turn to, Isaiah 53, talks about how that provision would come to us. Isaiah 53 preaches Jesus, the sacrifice to come, God's man, God's suffering substitute, His sacrificial Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, this is my my point to you this morning is this. This is the kind of passage that Timothy would have heard growing up from his grandmother and his mother Lois. He would have heard these passages read and studied and talked about, and they would have been saying, this is the one that's to come. This is the sacrifice to come. And then he meets this man named Paul. And Paul says, oh, brother Timothy, let me tell you about who Isaiah was talking about. Oh, that wasn't a lamb. That was a man. Here he is. It's Jesus. You know, the one you heard about? The one from Galilee? Yeah, that one. That's the one. Here he is. He is the one that God sent. And he, would, he expounded that to, to Timothy. And Timothy saw that. And his eyes were open because he'd been taught from the Old Testament through the Scriptures alone, that there would be a coming Messiah. There would be a sacrifice for his sins, as revealed in Isaiah 53, 7. I'm going to read it the way it should be read in our understanding. Jesus was oppressed and Jesus was afflicted, yet Jesus did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus' grave was assigned with wicked men, yet Jesus was with a rich man in his death because Jesus had done no violence, nor were there any deceit in Jesus' mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush Jesus, putting him to grief if Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. And as, the, as a result of the anguish of Jesus' soul, He will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, will justify the many, as He will bear their iniquities. This is what Peter would have understood, or Paul would have understood when he's talked to Timothy here. This is the Jesus that was talked about in Scripture. He has dealt with your greatest need. He has given you spiritual stability by becoming your sacrifice for you. And that's revealed to you in God's Word. God's Word gives us this kind of stability. When you have the knowledge of the Gospel of Christ from Genesis to Revelation, nothing in this world can steal your joy. Nothing. If you're built on the rock, if you're built on the the rock that is not on the shifting sands of men's traditions. I grew up in a tradition that taught that you could know that you're saved for a moment then if you sinned, you could lose your salvation. And I never really knew where I stood with God. I'm always in this teeter-totter battle trying to outdo my bad with my good. And then I read these Scriptures and I realized that I am justified not by my works, but by the work of Jesus Christ. Now I am on a solid foundation. Nothing hinders my walk with God at this point because I know that my walk is not contingent on me. It's contingent on the work Jesus did. 
He's satisfied with the work of his son. My works, not so much. My works fall short. But at the same time, because of his work in me, because of the work of Jesus' substitutionary redemption, my life has been transformed. And it's being transformed continually. That's what we go on to see. Go back to Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul tells us here that, number two, God's word is sufficient. Not just to give us spiritual stability, but to change us practically. Because in God's word, what we have is God speaking to us directly. I mean, you understand, when we talk about the sola scriptura here, we're talking about the word of the living God speaking to God's people. That's going to have practical implications on the children of God. If it, let me just say this. If there is no practical transformation in your life and you profess to be a Christian, you need to examine your life to see what you have placed your faith in. Because let me tell you something. When God transforms the soul, He transforms the life progressively. Not perfectly at this life. We progress not until glorification are we perfected. But there is the desire in the child of God for transformation. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. In this verse, we see the declaration that all Scripture, all Scripture contains Old and New Testament here. All Scripture is inspired. Basically what he says is all Scripture and Scripture alone is theonoustos, the word inspired. And that simply means the Scriptures are Breathed out by God. God's own words. God's own breath. They are living words. They are active words. Powerful words. Sufficient words. These words actually search your heart and change your life. They expose sin in you, but then they bring comfort to you. And they do that. Because they expose your sin to see your need of the Savior. And in seeing the Savior's work, you are brought comfort and grace and strength to persevere in the faith. Look at Hebrews Hebrews 2 or Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is very interesting. The Word of God is a book like no other book. You can spend hours and hours and hours reading this book and find no end to this book. It is deep. It is wide. It is broad. It is every way you can imagine edifying to your soul. But what's really great about this book is that not the fact that you read it, but it reads you. It's the only book that reads the reader. It's the only book that knows what's in you. It's the only book that exposes you, that that unravels you in front of God's righteousness so that you're naked and afraid and you're looking for a covering and you're not running to the fig leaves. You're running to Jesus, who is your covering. That's what the Word of God does to you. There you find covering. There you find hope and rest. Because the Word of God is active and it's alive and it works in His God's children. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge. Look what it's able to do. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, you can't do that. You can't even judge between your thoughts and intentions. I can't even define that. Okay, a thought and an intention. How do you separate those two? I really can't separate them. maybe somebody who's really smarter than me can maybe do that, but I can't do that. A thought and intention. Is that not the same thing? It's very similar. But the Word of God can distinguish between the two. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 13, there is no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him who we have to do. He, He makes a connection here that our thoughts and intentions are able to be exposed by God's Word and He can see what's really going on in our hearts. And he says it can divide just like it does between joints and marrow, which is really almost impossible to do as well. But only God's word can make that division, make that distinction. 
So God's word reads us. And it's, so if it's reading us, it must mean that it's sufficient to change us. If God takes the, 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 the word and he, he gives it to us to read and to study, he gives it to us for a reason, not just so we can be puffed up with knowledge, but so that it can transform our reason, renew our minds, change our lives. That's what he goes on to say back in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul goes on to say that the word of God does a few things to change us practically. And this is really what I want you to see is when we talk about doctrinal issues, so many times people want to say, okay, doctrine is, yeah, that's the head stuff, right? Yeah, that's the head stuff. We really, you know, it's not that important to me. I just want practical things. Listen, apart from doctrine, you'll never understand practice. You'll become a legalist. You'll try to justify yourself. You'll try to do good things. If you don't have doctrine to balance out what you do and why you do it and what's the motive of your heart, you'll do it all wrong. You don't divide doctrine and practice. They are connected. They're just like repentance and faith. They're connected. Matter of fact, if you have right doctrine, you're going to have right practice. Paul says in verse 16 that God's word is, is practical. It's profitable. You see that? Profitable. He says it's profitable for teaching. And that word teaching simply means doctrine. It's profitable to pass along doctrinal knowledge about God that leads to practical godliness. That's all doctrine is. Doctrine is, is the revelation of God that reveals our need of a Savior and transforms our lives in response to the truth of our Savior's work. That's really what's going on. When you were exposed to the gospel, what initially caused you to want to repent? Now, we know it's a sovereign act of God that He causes repentance to be wrought in the heart. But when you saw the glorious grace of our God through the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross who died for your sins, your initial response when you knew your sins were forgiven, they've been lifted off of you forever and ever, was, oh God, I'm sorry for what I've done. You had right knowledge and it moved you to right practice. A response to the heart. Because you had teaching. Somebody explained to you that the Word of God teaches that we are all sinners and that there is only one who is righteous and perfect, that He did that work for us. That is Jesus. And Jesus took our place and died in our stead, received our wrath, and He rose from the grave to justify us, to declare that He had conquered sin for us. We get that from Scripture. We have to teach that from the Bible. Churches have to teach the Bible. <laughs> it seems like a big revelation, right? Um, today, that is a revelation. Churches need to be teaching the Bible, reading the Bible, singing the Bible. We need to teach like the Reformers taught. The Reformers, after they got a hold of the Bible, they were so hungry for it, so starved for it, they began to look at every verse, just drinking it down and taking it in. And what they developed was an idea that we call Analogia Scriptura. Analogia Scriptura. In other words, the Scriptures are analogous to themselves. You can compare Scripture to Scripture to understand Scripture. The greatest interpreter of Scripture is not me or John MacArthur. It's the Scripture itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you want to know more about God's grace, more about God's provision, you go into a passage like we just read, maybe there even in Timothy, and you begin to study that out, cross-referencing, looking at what the rest of the Bible says in conjunction with this. And you study that way, and that way you understand the contextual setting of the truth that is in God's Word. There's a theologian named Her Herman Bavink, and he put it this way. Listen to this. We need to understand that the obscure texts of Scripture are explained by the plain ones. 
And the fundamental ideas of Scripture as a whole serve to clarify the parts. That's analogia scriptura. Scripture interpreting Scripture. The obscure texts are explained by the plain ones. The fundamental ideas of Scripture as a whole serve to clarify the parts. In other words, simply this. You don't take one exception in Scripture, one place when you read something odd in Scripture and say, I have to build a whole theology off of that verse. When nowhere else in Scripture does it teach that. Maybe it even teaches the opposite of that. For instance, baptism. You can read some passages out of Acts and think that people will try to build a whole doctrine that you must be baptized to be saved. Baptismal regeneration. But that would go contrary to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's by grace through faith that you are saved. So you don't build a doctrine off of one obscure verse. You let that obscure verse be interpreted by the, the weightiness of the rest of the Scriptures. Scriptures do interpret themselves. But the way they do that is preachers need to be teaching the Scriptures. Teaching you to search the Scriptures. I need to be teaching you systematically, verse by verse, so that you understand your doctrine of sin, your doctrine of Satan, your doctrine of predestination, your doctrine of salvation is derived from Scripture, not my conjecture, not my opinion. We need to understand that doctrine that we believe must be backed up with Scriptures, not just traditions. Why do we do what we do here? Oh, because that's what we've always done it. We're, you know, we just kind of, this is what we do as Baptists, this is how we handle things. That's not enough. It's not sufficient. I need to know biblically why you do what you do. What you teach. I mean, even even the simple application of this is this. How do you handle when someone says, is Jesus God? Yeah, yes, he is. Would you show me? Sure, let me show you. Um, uh, You take them to a passage and you go, well, yeah, that was, okay, that by itself, that really doesn't just say he's God. Let me just, uh, what do you do? You start looking for other scriptures. Colossians 1.16 says that He is the Creator of all things. All things are held together by Him and for Him. That means He must be the Creator. Well, who else is called the Creator? Genesis 1.1. God is the Creator. That is analogia scriptura. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. I just proved the deity of Christ from two verses. And that's consistent all throughout the rest of Scripture. And I want you to understand something as a church. If, if a church isn't doing this, if a pastor's not doing this, he is disobeying the Word of God in 2 Timothy 3.16. He is disobeying. He is actually saying he doesn't believe in Sola Scriptura. Teaching Scripture is a non-negotiable for the Christian church. It's a non-negotiable. Because doctrine actually affects the way we live practically. But not only that, it's because it's commanded to us by God and it's revealed to us in the Scriptures. This is what we teach. We have nothing else that's powerful. We have nothing else that's life-transforming. A doctrinally deficient church will eventually fill that void with something else, something of the world. And a lot of times we fill our churches with things of the world for the sake of the wrong reasons. We think if we compromise the truth and we satisfy the goats, we will have church growth. But instead, we infect the church and we produce church death. It is better to let Jesus build the church on His Word than to fill the church with goats who destroy the church from the inside out, like Timothy was dealing with in chapter 3. So, when that happens, how do we handle it? Well, we correct it. We reprove it. Go back to Timothy 3.16. If God's Word is not expounded, if God's Word isn't being taught, then how do we handle those situations? We, we need to correct those. So, Timothy is told here by Paul that God's Word is sufficient to reprove us practically. Reproving simply means warning others with God's Word. I mean, you can go to somebody and say you don't like what they do, 
But that's just your opinion. But when you can come to someone and say, brother, I believe what you're doing is sin according to 2 Corinthians whatever. And you can show them their sin. Then you have hope of exposing their sin, not for the source of the reason of destroying them, but for restoring them. That's the point of reproof. We reprove people so that we can gently restore them. Reproving is negative, okay? Reproving does have to do with tearing down. It does have to do with exposing sinful behavior, but not for the purpose of, okay, that dude messed up once, he's out. No. We reprove in the church so that we can restore him back to his place in the church and bring grace and expose him to the gospel of God's forgiveness and God's reconciliation through Christ. So in verse 16 further, Paul goes on to say that. He says that God's word is also sufficient to bring correction. Bring correction. That's the positive side here. Correction is the positive restoration. You can see that actually in Galatians 1, or Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you, do, you too will not be tempted. Now, what's implied in that is this. If anyone is caught in any trespass, that means someone had to catch him. Someone had to reprove him. Someone had to expose him. And if that happens, you who are spiritual, restore him. Go to him. Lift him up. Once his error and sins have been pointed out, lead him back to the promise of restoration that's found in forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the Christian life is about? I mean, we sin. And God's word is the most effectual way to expose our sin and to bring us back to restoration. I can fill your head with psychological mumbo jumbo and make you feel warm and fuzzy, but it's not going to transform your heart and your mind. It's not going to do a thing to you, but for the moment, make you feel good. And sometimes, to be honest with you, making someone feel good is the worst thing you can do. You're going to have to expose the fact that what they've done is an offense to God. It hurts the church, it hurts your, your witness. And you need to repent, brother, because God wants to use you in a way that would glorify his name. And even your repentance will do that. So repent, rejoice, you've sinned. God's grace is sufficient. Now go and make it right. Walk with God. Trust in his substitutionary work through Christ. Jesus made it right for you. Now, further down in verse 16, Paul goes on to say that God's word is not only sufficient to reprove and correct, but it's also sufficient to train us in righteousness. And this is where it becomes practical again. Teaching or correcting, teaching and then Pointing out sin and then restoring those in correction leads to an idea of a transformed life, a training, an instructing in transformation. That's what he's talking about. Train in righteousness, which basically means cultivate the application of truth. The things you've been taught that showed you the truth about God's grace, your sin, your need of a Savior, that helps you when you need to be corrected and, and brought back in line. And it helps you to cultivate how to respond to the truth of God's grace. It instructs us how we should live a godly life. The Word of God does that. And, and practically, we, we understand that righteousness or sanctification comes through a proper application of God's Word. Because the, God's Word is what renews our minds. It washes our minds. It restores us to right thinking. And you need to understand something about Training in righteousness. It's, it's actually a way of talking about the progressive sanctification of God in your life that comes through the application of His Word. It comes through doctrinal understanding. Look at Philippians 2 quickly. Philippians 2. 
I always say quickly. We never go quickly, but go to Philippians 2. Sounds good. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is, is a fascinating passage because in this we see doctrine. The doctrine of God's grace. And then we see in this, we see the response, the training in righteousness, the application of the truth in the apostle as he's speaking here. Look at verse 5, chapter 2. Here's doctrine. You ready? Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, that means he's speaking of the deity of Jesus, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be asserted. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, okay, he just expounded the greatest news in the world, doctrinally. He just said, God became flesh and took your place. And he's coming again. And every knee will bow. So, how does that affect you? So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more, now much more, in my absence, work out or cultivate your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I love it. He backs it up with more doctrine. He says, it's God who did this work through Christ. Now you respond to it in, in obedience and in joy and working and, and laboring. And then it's, understand this, God's the one doing the work in you. It's for His glory. But He's working in us a progressive change. And, and what's going on here is what I want you to understand is sanctification, progressive sanctification, is really just simply this. It's an expression of thanksgiving for the Christian. Your walk in obedience is an act of praise and thanksgiving to God's regeneration. What God has done for you in Christ and salvation is responded by the act of walking in sanctification. And understand this. Sanctification is justification in action. What's been declared about you by God, that you have been justified, declared right, has has a powerful, effectual work in your life. It's called sanctification. The declaration about your new standing changes the way you live, changes the way you move. And that's really what's going on when he's saying this. The Word of God, the declaration of the Word of God's grace to you is sufficient to transform and train and instruct you how to live a godly life. Now, look back at 2 Timothy 3.17. He says, this is given to you. This is all, this, this training and this correction, this reproof and this teaching is given to you for a purpose. It's so that the man of God may be adequate, or uh, ertos, adequate, equipped for every good work. And what, what, what Paul's saying is this, God's word, God's breathed out word, when it's applied, when it's applied the way he just described, when it's applied through teaching and reproof and, for, and correcting and training, it will actually strengthen and equip you practically in life and ministry and give you hope in face of every adversity. You see, he's saying, 
if you believe in the Word of God, if you believe in Sola Scriptura, that it's sufficient to do all these things, and you apply it in your life, it will make you ready to serve Jesus Christ. It'll make you effectual. It'll make you confident. It'll make you strong. It'll give you strength when you have no strength. Because your strength is not relying on your own ability, your own intellect. But when you struggle and you stumble, you go back to God's Word and you see that I'm not alone. I mean, all you have to do is read the psalmist someday, right? When you think you're having a bad day, read David. And David says, I've cried all night. My bones are melting. I don't even know if you're here, God. Where are you? This is the kind of language that David cries out. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Yes, you have. You may not admit it, but you felt that way. And when you read that, then you read a little further, and David says, Oh, soul, rejoice. Soul, listen to God's word. Even though I don't see him, I don't experience God now, his word has revealed to me that God is real and he has transformed my life. I have a hope based on the word of God. It is enough to make me equipped to change my life, to make me fit for ministry. That's what he says there in Timothy. The word is profitable to make a man complete. Complete. Equipped. And what, what, what Paul's saying is the Scriptures are sufficient. Scriptures are sufficient, or they're all that a Christian needs to be complete and to be equipped for life and ministry. It's enough to teach the Bible. That's what he's saying. We don't have to be creative here. It's enough to preach Scripture. Teach Scripture to feed the church, direct the church, protect the church, make the church missional. I don't have to preach sola cultura to make the church missional. I don't have to preach the culture. I preach Christ. And out of response for love for His work, you go into the culture. You go into the world. You preach the truth. You proclaim truth. You don't need demographic studies and popular programs and pop psychology. You have God's Word in your soul. It's transformed you. Carry it out. That's what moves you missionally. Not cool and hip programs. We need God's Word, people. If we're going to go into the world, we need to know what to go in there with. It does no good to go in and do social programs if you don't have a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement to proclaim to those people. You feed them on their way to hell. We're called to feed them, yes, but feed them Word first. Feed them truth first. Then take care of those needs that are there, yes. We don't deny the social aspect of the Gospel. But it is not the Gospel. The gospel is the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the gospel and the word of God is sufficient to make us equipped for ministry and to live godly. Sola Scriptura is all we need. And if you believe in Sola Scriptura and you believe what Paul says, then you need to believe that the way God has ordained the scriptures to be proclaimed is primary. It's essential. God's ordained his primary way of making his revelation known is through the proclamation of preaching. We proclaim His glory. We present hope to the weary. We prepare His children for glory. That's what we do as preachers. That's what I'm called to do as a preacher. If you believe in Sola Scriptura, you must believe that Sola Scriptura gives a subordinate authority to me to preach to you Sola Scriptura. So that you would be transformed and go into the world. And listen, for me to do that sometimes is very difficult. Because sometimes I have to preach things to you that I know that I struggle with. So I have to... First, preach it to me multiple times before I preach it to you. At the same time, I'm being transformed with you. 
But I also have to preach things to you that are hard things. As a pastor, I have to preach hard truth from the Bible. And the reason that is, is because we have hard hearts. And only hard truth can break hard hearts. And when you break hard hearts with the truth of God, it creates soft people. People who worship God eagerly and thankfully for what God has done. John MacArthur put it this way, soft preaching makes hard people. You preach a soft message, and you'll have hard, selfish people. Church, many churches today are filled with soft preaching and selfish, hard people. We need to understand that that can't be the case here. We have hard truth, but it's glorious truth. It needs to be understood. We need to understand something about God's ordained means of proclaiming truth through preaching. You need to understand that this is not story time. You're not here to be entertained this morning. You are here to be under the authority of the Word of God and to be transformed by that. You need to understand that sermons are not talks. Sermons are not motivational speeches. Sermons are not conversations nor dialogues. They are monologues from God to you. Sermons are to be expositions of what the living God is saying to us through His Word. That's why there's any, there's any authority in what I say. It's when I get the Word right. When I get the Word right, you must listen and obey. Because it is God speaking through the sermon. Sermons, to do that, have to be scripturally based. Not motivationally based. They have to be God-centered, not man-centered. They have to be Christ-exalting, not self-esteem-exalting. Sermons are to be authoritative. They're to be commands. They're to be exhortations from God's Word because He loves His people. Listen, as parents, you understand that. You're authoritative. You give commands and you exhort your children every single day. And you love them. And that's the proof of it. You won't let them run out that door into that street when church is over today. And you will actually spank them if they do try to do that. That's love. Because in that street, they die. And without God's Word, we die. Without God's authoritative voice, we die. And I can speak with authority when I speak from His Word. This voice that comes from God's Word is the voice that leads men to Jesus. It leads men to repentance. It leads men to worship. There is no greater Word to preach. I'm commanded to preach one thing and one thing alone. Preach the Word, Pastor. You need to cry that to me if I ever go away from that. We want to hear Jesus. We want to hear God speak. Look at 2 Timothy 4.1. This tells us why we need to do this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. Here's the command. I, I, I'm commanding you in the presence of the triune God, He says. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. There's tenderness in this. For the time will come. Here's why we do it, folks. Here's why I'm talking about sola scriptura. This is our sole hope and authority because there's going to be a time coming, and I believe is upon us. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In accordance to their own desires, men will heap up to themselves teachers. But you, man of God, he says, you must preach the word. And notice, I think what's interesting here is we always see this verse, be ready in season and out of season. Most people have no clue what that means. I think I've heard John MacArthur summarize it best when he says, 
preach the word when it's popular and preach it when it's not. And I think we live in a time when it's not. I think we live in a time, you guys have been sitting here for 45 minutes and I still have 15 or 20 minutes to go. That's not popular. And the only reason sermons are long here is because I'm fallible and I still need to grow in grace and knowledge. And the word of God has to have preeminence. I'm wasting your time if I get up here and give you a 20 minute homily about me and you. I'm here to speak to you about Him and His glory. I'm commanded to preach the Word, to protect you, to feed you, to direct you practically. It's the only method. You understand this? This is the only method. There's not much methodology in the New Testament on how to do church. But this is the one method that we know God has ordained. It's preaching. Jesus was a preacher. He commissioned 12 preachers. One out of time, who now commissions us to preach and teach. Preach the word. It's the only thing that will actually do two things. It actually will reach the lost when you preach the word, and it'll restore the weary. It restores the saints. It's twofold. I can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jacob here as a believer. I can preach to him about Jesus, and he is going to be convicted of sin, and he's going to rejoice in his salvation, and he's going to walk in sanctification as a result. Then I can go to the unbeliever and I can preach Jesus and he can be reached with the good news of Jesus' grace and his work. He can be restored. He can be reconciled to God and he can now become a worshiper of God. That same message cuts both ways. It's effectual and we need to be preaching it. That's my commission as a pastor. I'm commanded to read to you the word of God, to teach you the word of God. I'm going to do so with authority. So when I say authority, and I just started this whole sermon out with, the Bible's our only authority, right? Well, sola scriptura doesn't mean that God didn't give other authorities to guide the church. But my authority is a subordinate authority. It's subordinate to Scripture. And I derive my authority from Scripture if I handle Scripture accurately. Understand, pastoral authority or church authority is, is basically lies in the power of how we handle the Word of God. If I, if I handle the Word of God in relation to its grammatical, historical, authorial context, then I speak with authority, and you should listen. And you should listen if I line up with that scriptural, if I line up scripturally, and even historically with Orthodox Christianity. You need to check that as well. But if, if a pastor uses the Word of God to twist it, to conform it, to shape it, to do what he wants it to do. He has no authority and you should not listen to him. It is not a clay nose that you can shape the way you want it. It has to shape us and correct us. That's why we preach hard truth. Because God's revealed it to us. We have no choice. Where else will I go for the words of life? Scripture. All a pastor is commanded to do is preach sola scriptura. I'm, I'm commanded to be the vehicle to deliver God's messages to you. But the final authority is not your pastor. I am not your final authority. I may have an authority. I do have a delegated authority by the Word of God to guide you, to re- direct you, to correct you, to teach you, to love you, to be with you in good times and bad. But my final authority and your final authority is not a pastor. It's not a church. It's not a tradition. It's not an experience. It's the Word of God. You can take all of your experiences that you say you have, spiritual, mystical, whatever, you can take all the teachings you've ever heard, and if they don't line up with Scripture, you need to reject them. You need to cling to what is true, 
Go to God's Word. That is your authoritative voice. Because we can have experiences that have nothing to do with Scripture, whatever. And people will base whole ideas of life and living on their experience. I've experienced that myself this week, last two weeks. I've experienced frustration at hearing people who profess to be Christians talk in ways about God that are not consistent with Scripture because they have an emotional reaction to something. I I sympathize with their emotional reactions, but they're biblically inaccurate and ultimately blasphemous. So those experiences have to be submitted to the Word of God. That is the final authority. And you need to understand something as Christians. Whatever a prophet, a preacher, a teacher proclaims is able to be questioned by the Scriptures. Acts 17 tells us that, verses 10 and 11. Don't, you have to turn there, but Acts 17, 10 and 11 is when the Apostle Paul is preaching at Berea. And the Bereans say, yeah, you know, we like what you're saying, Paul, but we're going to consult the written revelation of God to check you out. I mean, they did that to Paul. They did that to Paul. You better be doing that to me. He was inspired. I'm not, but I read to you an inspired word. But you need to examine all things carefully. And understand that, again, the final authority over your life and my life lies in sola scriptura. It lies in the inspired Word of God that's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness when it's handled properly, exegetically, and contextually. You know what that means? When the meaning is drawn out of the text according to its context, listen to that and obey. That's your authority. If it's twisted, if it's contorted, there is no authority in that. And I'll tell you this, pastorally, let me just share a secret with you about pastors and so-called pastors. Men will abuse this pulpit for power, prestige, and pride. It happens all the time. I hear about it. I hear men boast in it. And it makes me cringe to hear that. You need to examine all things Biblically, don't put your faith in a man. Trust in God's final word, His voice. We have a sufficient voice. We have an all-powerful voice. We have an authoritative voice. We have the very voice of God Himself speaking to us to give attention to His words so that our lives will be protected and guided biblically. We need to listen to those voices that God gives us in His word. Let me give you one of those voices in His word in Proverbs 4 as I finish up here. Proverbs 4, verse 20. To 22. This is the all sufficient voice you need, and it's crying out to you. God is crying out to you in this passage, saying, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them, keep his words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their body. These are God's words. Give attention to them. Listen to them. Don't let them depart from your sight. Keep them in your heart. They're your life and they're your health. These are sound words. Health, life-giving words that come to us through Sola Scriptura. If you believe in 2 Timothy 3.16 and you believe Proverbs 4, then you have to believe in Sola Scriptura. If If you truly believe this and you're living this out and you're walking in the truth of Scriptures, and you believe these things, you need to rejoice this morning. Not everyone believes the Scriptures. 
Many, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? He'll say, I never knew you. They were basing their salvation and their, their standing before God on the deeds that they had done. He says, I didn't know you, but you today as Christians, if you stand before God and say, Lord, according to your word, I believe that Jesus lived a righteous life for me, died the death I deserved, rose on the third day to justify me according to the Scriptures. You will be justified. You will be forgiven if you truly believe that. Put your trust and confidence in that and repent of your sins. Turn away from the things you've trusted in and trust only in the Word that's revealed to us in Scripture. You will believe and you should rejoice because what you have heard with your ears or what Jesus talked about for those who had ears to hear You've heard the verbum day, the word of God. You've heard the very word of God. God spoke to you. You realize, think, think of your salvation. Think of the day that you knew God converted your soul and you opened the scriptures for the first time. God spoke to you. You're my child. Here's what I have to say. He spoke to you. And it's through that inscripturated revelation that you've now been guided to the church. You've now been guided to sit under authoritative teaching so that you would be transformed and trained in righteousness and corrected and reproved so that you would go out into the world and be equipped and adequate for every good work. That's why you're here, because of sola scriptura. God spoke and inscripturated it and revealed it to you by His Holy Spirit. And it's the scriptures and the power of the Spirit that brought you out of darkness and into the light of the gospel of Christ. Don't let the darkness of this world and religion and tradition ever put that, that light out. Don't ever let those things become more important to you than the Word of God. Don't ever let even the fact that you try to be a good person and do good things overshadow the fact that you are not a good person according to Scripture and you need the revelation to be reminded of that. And so go back again and again and study it and read it. Read, study, worship God through His Word. Be reminded of His grace, reminded of your sin and your need of a Savior. In the Word of God, here's what you hear. You hear God speak about your greatest need and His greatest good. In the Word of God, God speaks clearly about how sinful we truly are. We're born in sin. We're enslaved to sin. And yet God says in His grace, I have come to do something about sin, according to my Word. I've made a provision before the foundation of the world. I have a sacrifice for you. So when you see that and you understand that, you need to realize what you're seeing and hearing is, God's living word. God's living word came. God's living word came to dwell among us and to display his glory to sinners and those who would repent of their sins and run to Jesus for hope, according to the scriptures. Isn't it amazing that we have this? The reformers wanted to die with this in their hands. This was life to them. This was hope. This was transformation. This brought them out of the darkness of religion into the glorious light and freedom that's found in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins that are granted to us by God's sovereign grace in the Scriptures. We need to cling to it. Sola Scriptura still should be our cry as Christians today. This word is sufficient. It is powerful. It is able to transform us and to make us equipped to do God's will in this world. Bible alone is all that we need. And in the Bible, we are given instructions and we are giving, given authorities to guide us and to direct us according to the word. And for that, we give thanks for the church. That is God's subordinate authority to protect you, 
And I want to just say this. It's through the revelation of the doctrine of the church that I was called to pastoral ministry. I remember reading Timothy over and over and over and over in my heart through, the God, through God's revelation and His Word of what the church looks like without shepherds. My heart was broken. Then I would read Jeremiah. So they had no shepherd and God would send them a shepherd. That's what drove me. That's what God used to call me to the revelation of my calling as a pastor. It was the Word. I didn't have another man over my shoulder saying, I think you're called. God called me through His Word. Listen, God will call you through His Word to do whatever He's designed for you to do in this world. You just need to trust in that Word. You need to obey it. And if you would, let's, let's bow and praise God for it together as a church. It is a sufficient Word to guide us and to direct us. We need to give Him proper thanks for it. Heavenly Father, we do thank You today that You have given us an authority, an authoritative voice that is the goodest, the greatest voice that we could ever desire to hear and to be led by. It is a voice that cried out for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the voice that pleaded and interceded for us upon the cross. It is the voice that will come from heaven once again in the future when, when you call us to meet Christ. It is the voice that secures us when we're afraid and when we're ashamed and brings us back to the all-sufficient work of Jesus, our Savior. We lift up Your name. We praise You for Your Word. We thank You for the revelation that is given to us that we can actually hold in our hands and absorb into our minds. Help us, God, to walk in it daily, to love it more dearly than we've ever loved it, and to share it more openly than we've ever shared it. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.